Well, good morning. How many are glad to be in God's house this morning? It's so good to see y'all here today. If I could have a little more monitor, guys, that'd be very helpful this morning. But you know, today we launch our brand new series called Strong Church. And over the next several weeks, we're looking at what a strong church looks like from a biblical point of view. What do they do? What do they believe? What do they confess? So it's going to be an exciting series. And it really, it kind of runs right into Dream Conference this year. So the opening week of Dream Conference, that Sunday, three big things happen on one Sunday. First of all, our brand new illustrated sermon you just saw advertised, The Return of the Gods. And this is a sermon that's dramatized, built on, off of uh, Jonathan Kahn's best-selling book, The Return of the Gods. It's going to explain a lot about what's happening in our world, in our nation, in our schools today. So it's a can't-miss illustrated sermon. Make sure you bring your lost friends and loved ones. I think if I know that if they're here, their hearts will be touched and there's a strong likelihood they'll come to know Jesus Christ as their personal savior. And then on that same weekend, it's baptism Sunday so they can find the Lord and follow him in water baptism right after. And then finally, it's special to me anyway, because it's the week I launched my brand new book, Adventure Your Life. Been working on it now for three years. It's finally done, and so that will be available as well. So it's going to be an exciting dream conference season this year. Heavenly Father, I pray you would touch our hearts today. I pray there be, first of all, ears to, to hear what your word has to say, but also there be great joy and life and enthusiasm uh, represented in this crowd here today. We invite your Holy Spirit now, Lord, to do our work, to show us the kind of church that you want to build. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Strong Church, part one. Take a look at this video. He's done it again. Another successful feat for Nick Walenda. He walked a high wire across Times Square, a quarter of a mile and 25 stories up. How do you top yourself once you've done the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, and now Times Square? Get this, he's talking volcanoes. Nick Valenda walks over a volcano. To me, it just falls in line. Of course it does. That's natural. <laughs> I want to talk to you this morning about having balance in the church. I believe a strong church is a balanced church. And I had this idea to string a rope right across the first balcony and attempt to walk the wire right over your heads. But our HR department informed me that our workman's comp account has been drained since my boulder accident. And so they nixed that idea. So today I have a substitute prop. I have a balancing beam. When Nick Willetta walked the tightrope, he had a bar in his hand like this. Why did he have a bar? Well, he knew if he tilted too far this way, he might fall. And if he tilted too far this way, he might fall. So we held a balancing bar to keep him on balance. Today, we're living in a world that is out of balance. Out of balance culturally. People are out of balance politically. They're out of balance, you know, in so many different ways. And, and Christians can also get out of balance. I know Christians who are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. They talk so much about the glory of the life to come while living in chaos in the life that is. I also know Christians who are so earthly minded. They're so carnal. They're so worldly. They're so, 
you know, culturized, then heaven can't use them. When the balance effect is to be so heavenly minded that heaven's influence works through our lives so that our lives can leave an imprint for Jesus Christ while we're on this earth. That's the balance approach. But I wanna talk to you today about how a church stays on balance. There's a great scripture in the Bible, right from God himself, that I think shows us and tells us how a church can be strong, strong in their balance. It is found in Micah chapter six in verse eight. This is what it says. God speaking. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and then just walk humbly with your God. So I want us to read this one more time together as a church in one full voice. Ready? Go. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? The book of Micah is a book of complaint. God is issuing his complaint to his people who are just playing church. They're being religious. They're bribing God, trying to bribe God with religion. And that's why God asked this question on behalf of the people in verse six. He says, with what shall I come before you, before the Lord? This is what the people were asking. And, and bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In other words, the people are asking, what can we do to please God? What is it going to take from our lives to please God? And God responds in verse eight. The Lord requires you to do justly to love mercy, and then just walk humbly with your God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and ordered something off the menu and they brought you something that you didn't order, right? And you're like, I didn't order that. Well, they're not gonna tell you, well, just go ahead and eat it, it's good. Because that's not what you ordered. The people were trying to give God something that he didn't order. Just religious stuff, you know, church attendance even tithes. And God is saying, look, there's nothing wrong with those things, but this is what I require of you. That's a, that's a command. That's a, a, an imperative. I want you to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Give me those things first, and then I can accept your religion. Then I can receive your tithes. Then I can accept your worship. But if you do these other things, but don't give me what I ordered, well, I'm going to leave hungry because you didn't give me what I asked for. So he's asking Dream City Church and the families of our church, because all we are is a collection of families. He's asking three things to make up a strong, balanced church. First thing he says is, I want you to do justly. A strong church does justice. A strong church is full of justice warriors. They do justice. Now, justice is more than just a discussion. It's more than just a sermon. It's more than just an idea or going to a conference. Justice is something you do. You do justice. Now, this issue of justice comes up a lot in our society today. And it boils down to an issue of fairness. 
what is fair, what is right, what is just. Problem is, you and I, almost all of us, we all, uh, we all view fairness a little bit differently. You may think something is fair that I don't think is fair. I may think something is fair that you don't think is fair. Let's take the Barnett family for a moment, okay? We got, mom, come on up here. Quickly, 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 hurry, 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 hurry. Give my mom a good hand, she needs a little help. Brad, come on up here, Brad. Brad Baker, come on up here. And Joe, you can come up as well. No, I need, I need Aubrey to come up. Hurry, Aubrey. Come on up here. Joe, you can sit down. Hurry, Aubrey. Hurry, hurry, hurry. So here we have Mama Barnett. Aubrey is going to represent my older sister, Christy. Okay. Okay. Christy isn't here today. Come over here. Okay. Christy's the oldest in the family. Uh, you're going to represent my brother, Matthew. Come on up here, Brad. Brad is the youngest in the family. And I'm the middle child, the well-balanced middle child, I'll say very humbly. I want to take you back to Davenport, Iowa, 1978. Mama takes Christy, Luke, and Matthew to Kroger Grocery Store. To buy groceries. On the way out, she buys a chocolate bar, an Almond Joy chocolate bar. Christy, the oldest, takes the chocolate bar, opens it, and there's two pieces. So she takes one, and she gives one to me. Matthew says, that's not fair. Amen. That's unequal treatment because my siblings are getting something that I didn't get. That's unequal treatment. We get home. Mama Barnett goes to the freezer and she pulls out the ice cream and dips a huge scoop of chocolate ice cream, puts it in a bowl for her baby, Aww. Matthew. Aww. Christy and Luke say, that's not fair because all we got was chocolate and Matthew got something better. He got ice cream. So he got preferred treatment. So we got unequal treatment. Now we got preferred treatment. Well, and we start screaming and yelling all three of this at mom. That's not fair. That's not fair. Mom says, I'm sick and tired of you kids. You are driving me crazy. All three of you get outside and go play all day, right? Yes. Yeah, get outside with you. We all three scream out to mom. That's not fair because you're making us do something against our will. And that is coerced treatment. Now give my three props a good hand here today. Amen. You can be seated. You can be seated. So we got unequal treatment. They got something I didn't get. Then we have preferred treatment. He got something, you know, uh, they got, he got something better than we got. And then we got coerced treatment. You made me do something against my will. So everybody in the Barnett house is crying out, that's not fair. Now, what happens is these kids grow up and they bring these same questions of fairness into the culture. 
So is fairness $12 an hour, or is it $15 an hour, or is it $25 an hour? Is fairness no cash bail, where certain people in certain cities can commit horrific crimes and go into the police offices and, and they are released two hours later to commit more crimes? Everyone has their own ideas of fairness based on how they were raised, their background, their life experiences. And one of the reasons why, listen now, we have so much chaos, chaos in America today is because everyone is disagreeing on what is fair. Everybody has their own ideas on what is fair. And yet God says over and over and over in the scriptures, I want you to be people of justice. I want you to do justice. So the question is, what is justice? Let me give you a definition. Biblical justice is the impartial application of God's moral law in society. That's justice. That's fairness. Say it again. Biblical justice is the impartial application of God's moral law in society. Justice always begins. Don't don't miss this. It always begins by what God declares something to be. God declares what a matter to be. A strong church believes in the James 4-1 factor. God is the only law maker. God is the only lawmaker. Any law that anybody makes must be consistent with the one lawmaker in order to be just. And when people start making up their own laws and become their own lawmakers, the result is going to be chaos. Welcome to America today because people will just make up their own rules that are partial to them, that serve their interest. Hey, parents, in your home, The moment everybody makes up their own rules, guess what? You're going to have chaos. Why? Because when you make up the rules and she makes up the rules and and he makes up the rules, they're making up rules that look out for them. That's why justice must be impartial. It cannot be just bent in your interest or my interest. Justice must be tied to something that's bigger than you and bigger than me, more eternal than us. That's why justice in the Bible... Uh, Oh, by the way, that's why James says this. God is the one lawmaker. Look at me, friends. God wants to be the one lawmaker over your life. That would be a great place to say amen. Because I'm preaching good today, but some of you have never been to a black church. Because in black churches, they love their pastor. So they encourage him while while he preaches. So I'm going to give you one more opportunity to have fun in church like the black folk do, Okay. James says God is the one lawmaker and God wants to be the one lawmaker over your own life. Come on, somebody. He wants to be the one lawmaker over your family. He wants to be the one lawmaker over your church. He wants to be the one lawmaker over your business, how you conduct your business. He even wants to be the one lawmaker over our government, which is why Romans 13 tells us that government officials are to be ministers of God based on what God says is right and wrong or good or evil. God says, I want to be the one lawmaker for your government. And the moment government starts making up laws that are inconsistent with God's word, God's laws, you have chaos in society. You see, that's why justice in the Bible is almost always coupled with righteousness. You find them as twin towers side by side. For an example, Psalm eighty-nine, fourteen says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Why? Because if you don't know what's just, then you can't do right. 
If, if, if you can never have justice if there's not a righteousness standard, standard by which you're measuring all your life decisions. And God's, God is always perfectly right about every subject matter. However, and you young people know this, you've heard it over and over again, we are living today when the chief value is pluralism. The absolute value in America today is that there are no absolutes. There's no superintending rules. Any idea you have is as valid as every idea. So I get to make my own rules. It's my truth. It's my truth. I get to make my own rules. So you got this group making up their rules over here. You got this group making up their rules over here. You got that group making up their rules. And pretty soon these rules begin to clash. And you have chaos. Because there's no superintending, overriding guideline to which all people must submit. Oh, we see this in families. Parents, if you have teenagers, guess what? You have young people trying to make up their own rules in the family. And when they try to make up their own rules, and you're the chief lawmaker in the house, (laughs) there's going to be a clash. Well, what happens when a people in society start doing that with God? Clash. And that's what's happening today. Everybody's making up their own rules. And we wonder why, when we look at America today, why is there so much chaos? Why is there so much turbulence? Why don't we have any peace? Why is there no harmony? Because everybody is making up their own rules. And that's why we need a strong church. Listen to me, friends. The church is supposed to be the thermostat of society. Society is the thermometer reading the temperature that is set by the church. So if there's chaos, if the temperature is not right in the culture, it's because the church has not set the thermostat right. Because we hold the temperature of the culture. We are supposed to be the conscience of the culture. We are supposed to bring God's point of view regarding every issue that, are, that is being dealt with in our land today. We are not supposed to just parrot the culture. We are not just parakeets, you know, speaking what the culture tells us to speak. Our job is to deliver to the society what the one lawmaker says about every single subject, and there is no subject that's outside of his jurisdiction, including abortion and the sanctity of life, including the biblical definition of marriage, including how to raise your kids including how to deal with your finances. There is no subject that our nation's dealing with today that's outside of God's jurisdiction. He has spoken to every one of them because he's the one lawmaker. In a strong church, listens to the one lawmaker and and abides by by his rules. Now, if you don't believe that, let me tell you what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna be blown in this life by every wind and doctrine because you're gonna be chasing this person and that person. Well, this is what my mama used to say. Well, this is what my professor in college says, who, by the way, lives in his mom's basement, amen. This is what the polls say. Look, that's not justice. That's not justice. Justice is the impartial application of God's moral law in society based on God's word. And if we're going to save America, we need some churches that will stand up and stand for justice and fairness the way God defines it. Do justice. Do justice. So here we are. 
And now we're walking through culture. And we got justice. And it's a tight walk because everyone has their own idea of justice. We gotta have justice and justice. Listen, if all you are is a law and order person, if all you are is justice, justice, follow the rules, don't break the rules, justice, 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 if that's all you are, then you're gonna have a hard heart. You're gonna get cold. And so God says, you need to learn to balance justice with mercy. I want you to hold the line. I want you to live by my word. You gotta have a standard, amen? But you also gotta have a heart. You gotta have justice and mercy. Ever known a parent who was just all justice? Follow the rules. Obey the rules. I make the rules over and over. I make the rules. Well, that's legitimate, but it's off balance. God says, I want you to balance justice with mercy, justice with loving kindness. I want the people that you are applying the justice to, to also know that you care about them. So apply the standard. But also, I want them to know that you have a heart of compassion and kindness. There's two groups of people that Dream City Church needs to show mercy and compassion and kindness to. And these two groups envelop every soul sitting in this place here today. The first one is those whom life has not been kind to. That's our culture today. The Bible says in Zechariah 7 and verse 8, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Psalm 82 verses 2 through 4 say, how long, God speaking, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? That's what's happening in America today, right now. Our, Our culture is defending the wicked defending wicked doctors who would mutilate mutilate little children in their most vulnerable years when they're confused. He says, defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. God says, Dream City Church, if you're gonna be a strong church, I want you to reach out to the poor. I want you to reach out to the downtrodden. I want you to reach out and help those who've fallen on tough times, sometimes it's not even their fault. These verses and other verses like them in the Bible really define many of the ministries here at Dream City Church. That's why we have a Dream Center. 300 residents. This church, several years ago, paid $5 million to buy an Embassy Suites hotel and renovate it. And today we have people who, in many cases, they come from fatherless homes. They've fallen into situations and they can't even tell you why it happened. In some cases, it's decisions that they've made, but in other cases, it's no fault of their own. I was talking to a a young girl from the Dream Center. She's maybe 30 years old, young to me anyway. And and, uh, she called me at 5.55 in the morning, just before prayer meeting. And she ran up and she wrapped her arms around me and she said, Pastor Luke, I was living on the streets for 10 years of my life, hopelessly addicted to drugs. My friends had given up on me. My family had given up on me. 
but I came to the Dream Center. And I've gone through one year discipleship. I'm completely free. I'm excited about my future. I know God's going to use my life. You would have never convinced me that this was my life. Friends, that's why we do it. That's why we do the human trafficking ministry and rescue young ladies who sometimes were just snatched off the streets. It's no fault of their own. And they've been doing these acts under the duress of of drugs from their pimps in these dark, dingy hotel rooms, trapped. And when they come out of that lifestyle, they're free. And they say, thank you for being a church that reaches the forgotten. In Colorado City, an entire city is being transformed by the glory of God. One of the, one of the pers- people who found the Lord, her name is Lucia. Lucia has now gone through our chaplain program. She is our chapel up in Colorado City, winning people to Jesus Christ in that city. I've heard this twice now. I've heard this twice now. It's called Colorado City, but two people have said one day it's going to be known as Dream City, where dreams come alive and people are rescued. I'm believing for that. Friends, it's why we're doing the Native American ministry. I wish I had showed you the picture, but we now have a church in San Carlos. Hopefully it's going to launch this Easter. Come on, somebody, because there's a community that needs mercy shown to them. What has happened to our Native American brothers and sisters has just been catastrophic. It's been evil. And they just need to know that somebody cares about them. I can go on the Thrive Ministry that reaches those who have been um, in the foster care system. Thank you, Angel. Mom's Pantry, feeding 10,000 people. The Adopt the Block program. I could go on and on. See, that's the kind of church that we need to be. A church that stands for justice and truth in one hand, but also a church with a heart. That's our name. We're called the church with a heart. And friends, I'm talking to people who had absolutely no control for where they wound up. How can a church say to people, why don't you just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps if they don't even have any boots? We have to be a church with a heart but also a church who stands for justice. So if, if you're healthy, you need to get a job. Come on, somebody, you need to work. Justice, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. That's in the Bible. You gotta read it sometime. It's really good reading, amen. But we are to show mercy to those whom life has hurt. Those who are not rebelling, they've just fallen victim to this dark, evil society that we're living in. But secondly, Dream City Church, if we're going to be a strong church that's balanced, we also need to be a church that reaches out to those who are guilty and they need grace. And that's all of us. Anybody here ever been guilty of something and need grace? Turn the person who's not raising their hand and say, you're a liar. You need grace right now. Amen. Because you're not raising your hand. (laughs) There are two ways you can obtain mercy in your time of need. You know, when a criminal is found guilty in court, sometimes he will say, I throw myself down at the mercy of the court. Have you heard that? What is he saying? He's saying, please, I don't want the full weight of the law to be brought down upon me. And sometimes the judge is touched in his heart or her heart And they will render the sentence and say, because this person has shown remorse, because they are repentant, 
I'm going to show them mercy. You see, repentance opens up the door for mercy in our life. Now, contrarily, where there is no repentance, you slam the door for mercy. But if you are repentant in your heart, God sees that, and he opens up the door for some mercy. Now, God decides how much mercy that's going to be because he's perfect, amen? But repentance opens the door for mercy. There's a second way you can open the door for more mercy in your life. Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter five, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. James, the brother of Jesus, said it like this in James 2, 13, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. So listen, if all you are, is a justice person. Justice, 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 justice. The law, the law, the law, the law. And then it comes time where you need some mercy. And this life has a way of bringing us to our place where we need mercy. Come on, somebody. God will look at your mercy record. (laughs) And if you've just been justice, justice, law and order, law and order, but you have shown no mercy, then you've closed the door on your own mercy request. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't give up justice because we need a standard. Can you say amen? But balance it with mercy because God has a heart and he wants his people to have a heart as well. Well, Luke, if I'm just merciful, won't some people misuse, you know, my mercy? Of course they will. But listen, if I'm going to err as a pastor one way or the other, I want to err on the side of mercy because I want God to be merciful to me and merciful to our church. Come on, say amen. Now, sometimes people misuse mercy. When I was a a young man growing up in my dad's household, my dad loved to watch us play sports. He would go to every game. We played at Scottsdale Christian Academy, so we went to these small mining towns. He'd drive all over the state to watch his boys play. And uh, my brother Matthew went to Thunderbird High School over here, played in the basketball team. And uh, I think he was a freshman in high school. And my dad would go to all of our practices as well. And he would be studying his notes on Wednesday night, getting ready to teach here. And then he would be looking over his notes, watching us practice. He loved it so much. Well, on Wednesday night during those practices, um, he had midweek service here. He had to teach. And so after practice at six o'clock, he would jump in the car. And those of you who know this area, there's a stretch from 7th Street all the way up to Cave Creek Road. It's a long stretch. There's only one light there. There used to be no lights there. And my dad would take his car. He would just hit it, trying to make it to church on time. So here he is, boom, heading up there 60, 70, 80, 110. Whatever it was. He looks in his rear view mirror and he sees the lights flashing. And it wasn't a Kmart blue light special. Amen. <laughs> Police officer pulls him over. My dad says, I, officer, I'm guilty, 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 guilty. I know I'm guilty. And the police officer said, hmm, I haven't even asked you what you're guilty of yet. Makes me kind of wonder. He said, I know I was speeding. I am so wrong. But my dad knows how to talk to police officers. I'm a pastor of a church, trying to do the work of the Lord, but I love my kids as well, trying to keep my family together. I can almost see a tear coming down his eye, you know. 
please have mercy on me. And the police officer said, okay, Reverend, but please slow down. Please slow down. Next Wednesday, dad's over at Thunderbird High School watching Matthew practice. Looks down, 6 o'clock. Church starts at 6.30. He jumps in his car. Boom! Over the hill. Looks in his rearview mirror. Same blue lights flashing. Pulls him over. Same police officer. And my dad says, Mr. Police Officer, I am so sorry. I'm just running late trying to get the church. Would you please have mercy? And the police officer said, Reverend Barnett, uh, you're doing a lot of great things in the city, but please slow down. Please, please slow down. I'll slow down. The police officer takes off, goes over the hill. My dad hits the accelerator. Burr! Over the hill he goes. The next Wednesday rolls around. He's watching Matthew practice. Jumps in his car. Heads up over Thunderbird. 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. Blue lights again. This time, the police officer, same guy, walks up, doesn't say a word, just shakes his head and hands my dad a ticket. (laughs) My dad has to go to traffic school the next Saturday. He walks into traffic school. One of the members of this church was teaching traffic school. (laughs) Reverend Barnett, what are you doing here? And he offered to sign my dad's paper just to let him go and not have to be there all day. My dad said, no, I'm guilty, guilty, guilty. I deserve to be in, in traffic school. But I want to say, friends, we need to be a church that doesn't misuse mercy like my dad did so many years ago. Amen. <laughs> That's what this altar is for. You don't have to carry those burdens anymore. I'm glad you got that right, Dad. Let's not be like the penniless or the the merciless servant in Matthew 18. Remember that story? Where he had this mountain of debt he could never pay. And the king called him in and said, pay up. And the servant said, I need more time. I'll pay the debt if I can. But the king said, no, pay up. And the man said, please have mercy. And the king says, okay, I'm going to have mercy on you. The king's heart was touched by his debt. And he completely forgave the servant's debt. Man, what a king. That same servant walks out of the palace, walks across the street, sees a guy who owes him five bucks, chokes him and said, you pay the debt that you owe me. Or I'm going to have you thrown in prison for the rest of your life. Pay up. Justice, justice, justice. The king found out what this man did. Took him and his family and threw him in prison for the rest of his life. Because he was shown mercy. But he didn't give mercy. You see, strong church people understand both the person and the power of the gospel. They understand that Jesus is the person of the gospel, that he died in our place as our substitute. We had a mountain of debt we could never repay. And God didn't just wink at our sin and say, oh, boys will be boys. He's a God of justice. So he made Jesus Christ the person who would pay for the justice. He took out his justice on Jesus. So that it would open the door for God to have mercy on us. 
Let's not forget, church, that we have been forgiven a debt that we can never pay because of the mercy of Jesus Christ. And now it's our responsibility to take this mercy, this power of the gospel to the oppressed so they can be free, to the blind so their eyes can be opened, to the poor so they can receive the good news of Jesus Christ, that God loves them and Jesus' power can be applied to their life to make their lives better, to give them the hope of heaven. And then finally, last, we're almost done. A strong church walks humbly with God. So here we are. We're walking this life. We're walking and chewing gum at the same time. Amen. We got justice in one hand. We got mercy in one hand. But as we have these things in our hand, we're walking. We're walking through this life. And so God says, as you're walking through life with justice and mercy, make sure that you walk humbly with your God. And listen, as we close, to walk with, this is a term of intimacy. It's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Because if it's just about religion to you, it becomes an event. Like you come to a church. But a relationship is much deeper. You can have a legal relationship without having an intimate one. Just ask the person you're married to. Amen. There can be a legal relationship on paper and, and you don't even want to be in the same room as them because you're not walking with. What does it mean to walk with your God? Notice the order of the sentence. Walk humbly with your God. So you're not asking God to walk with you. You're walking with him, which means you got to know where he's going to walk with him. Too many people are asking God to walk with them, but you got to know where God is going to walk with him. The Bible says Enoch walked with God. The Bible says Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the garden with God. That means they were hanging out with God. They wanted to be with God. Some of you have walking partners. Anybody here have a walking partner? Why don't you just walk by yourself? Why do you need a walking partner? The reason why you have a walking partner is to have fellowship in motion. While you're walking, you're talking about the weather. You're talking about sports. You're talking about politics. You're talking about your kids, whatever. You are sharing life in motion. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to share our life with him in motion. You see, the reason why so many of our prayers are boring, even to God, <laughs> is because when we start praying, God says, here's what they're going to say again, because it never changes. And the reason why it never changes is because we are not doing life with God. Because if we're doing life with God, he's hearing about our life all throughout the day. He's hearing about the good, the bad, the ugly. He's hearing about our struggles, our sins, our circumstances, our victories in life. But we do these 30-second prayers, and it's the same conversation every time. Because we're not pouring out our whole life to God. Are you with me this morning? Walking with God, what is it? It's a matter of faith. By faith, Enoch walked with God. It's believing God is with me, that he cares about me, that he wants to talk with me. It's pouring my life out to God. It means that we want to be his friends. It means that God becomes your bestie. 
It's okay for God to be your bestie. The reason why we don't hear more from God, listen, is because he's not our bestie. He wants to hang out with us when we're driving our car on the way to work. He wants to hang out with us in our mind and heart as we're having a meeting, a business meeting. And we have one ear in the meeting. We have one ear to earth. We say, God, just speak to me during this meeting because God can read our mind through our prayers. Come on, say amen out there. And you're just enjoying God's presence all throughout your day because he's your bestie. But if you're just showing up to church once a week, or just saying those 30-second pre-meal prayers, you're not your bestie. It's just a religion. Walking with God is to be in fellowship with God without a leash. Yesterday, I pulled up on the top of the parking lot. It was still dark outside. And as the sun came up, I saw six coyotes just hovering around my car. Six coyotes right here in the middle of the city. They couldn't see me. I was in my car. And finally, they made their way up in the mountain. And just then, as it became daylight, a woman drove up in her Jeep. And she jumps out of her Jeep, and her big old dog jumped out of the back seat. And she didn't put a leash on him. They just walked side by side, up the trail, up the mountain, came all the way back down, and got in the car. Now, she had to have a really good relationship with that dog in order for that dog to, to not need a leash, right? Uh, that dog did not have to be drugged out of bed. That dog didn't have to be drugged to the church to walk the trail. So many Christians have to be drugged to pray, drugged to church. Oh, I'm late again because I'm leaving early again because I gotta be drugged to this place. Those who are leaving right now, amen. I, I can be drugged to serve. I'm going to be drugged to give, pull, 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 because there is no relationship. And where there is no relationship, you need a leash. But when people are walking with God, you don't need a leash. You want to be with God. You want to be in God's presence. You want to give. You want to serve. You want to praise God because he's your bestie. But while he's your bestie, he also wants you to know that he's also your God. (laughs) Jesus said, I call you my friends. And he said, if you do what I say. So it's okay to be besties with your kids to a point. You and your kids ought to have fun together, make memories together, but they need to know their place. God said, I want you to walk with me, but know your place. I want you to be my bestie, but know your place. Walk humbly with your God. Being humble doesn't mean we denigrate ourselves. It means that no matter what anyone says about us or how much they puff us up, we stay humble. We do not believe our press. We understand why we are blessed and we give honor and glory to God Almighty because we are blessed, blessed, blessed by him. I'll close with this. Look at this picture. A mannequin is dressed in a $5,000 suit. I've seen mannequins wearing $15,000 Rolex watches. But the only reason the mannequin is dressed up is because the owner dresses it up. So mannequin, now you listen to me, better known as dummy. Come on, somebody. 
Don't think that you are who you are or have what you have or dress how you dress or drive what you drive or wear what you wear on your own because on your best day, you are just a dummy that's been blessed by almighty God. He has blessed your life and you need to walk humbly with your God. In golf, the low score wins. In football, the bigger you are, the lower you go. You are a lineman. So no no matter how much God has blessed us, let's be humble. No matter how much we rise up, higher we rise, the more intentional we ought to be about going down in our own eyes. Because people will try to puff you up. And people will try to make you more important than you are. When you die, your body is worth $6.86. That's how much your body's worth. The only thing that's good in your life is not in your body. It's the glory of Almighty God that lives inside of you. That's what's going on. That's what's going on into eternity. We got to close and take communion. Would you all stand to your feet?